Heavenly Father, we're grateful. Um, grateful for another opportunity um, to come and learn and study and fellowship together and reflect on uh, the scriptures. Uh, grateful for this life you've given us, this, the ability that we have to, to learn and to love, which we wouldn't have without you. So we pray um, for this time. And we dedicate it to you. And we pray that your spirit uh, would guide us and teach us and direct us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I'm going to share a secret with you. I was told not to tell anybody. But I figured it's just us. So you knew I was working on a commentary on Mark. So that's a project that I have. And uh, one of the doctoral students at the college, pastors in Charlotte, and um, needed an extra course. And so he's going to do a course on Mark. And we're going to have his church go through a Bible study on Mark as well. And then we'll collaborate on what real live Christians say and ask when you reflect on the gospel of Mark in the contemporary world. You guys are real live Christians. Uh, and then this is a totally side note, but a good game, Rob. I lost my fantasy game by a point and a half uh, to Rob and, and Zach this week. Very disappointing. Yeah, well, you guys were way ahead. My one guy who played on Monday night had a game of the century. He was so good that his team got so far ahead that they benched him in the end. <clears throat> yeah, well, your prayers were answered and mine were not. We're in Mark chapter 3 tonight. Oh, I didn't tell you the secret. Um, so here's the secret. So uh, there's a new um, translation um, that a group of people are working on, new translation of the scriptures. And I've been invited to uh, be the contributor on Mark. Yeah, so I'm going to translate it for that translation. Yay. Yeah. I should, I should figure out what it says. Good idea. That's what we're doing here. Let's start. Um, there are a few stories here in Mark chapter 3. We kind of mentioned last week as we were looking at chapter 2 that verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3 really kind of go with the previous story. They're kind of two stories about the Sabbath. Uh, one in which Jesus' um, disciples are picking grain and making some bread apparently on the Sabbath, which a little borderline according to the Pharisees, what you should and shouldn't do. And then there's another Sabbath story. Um, so in some ways, I think those really go together, and the chapters um, are unnecessarily breaking us up. The next two sections, uh, 7 through 12 and, and 13, uh, through 13 through 19, um, are often broken up as well as two different paragraphs in modern translations, and I really think they go together. That is the the multitude at the seaside where Jesus, um, again, cast out some uh, unclean spirits and the calling of the twelve. I think those two stories go hand in hand. We'll look tonight at um, the story of Jesus um, and the accusations that some had against him that he was working with or may actually be Beelzebul. And then we'll end with the discussion on Jesus's family. Um, which is always fascinating. It's kind of like a little conspiracy theory 
Who are those people? Where'd they come from? Why don't we know more about them? So uh, let's start with Mark uh, chapter 3, verse 1. And he entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. They watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Come forward. And they said to them, And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger, and he was grieved at their hardness of heart. And so he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So, we had said a little bit uh, last week uh, and the week before that if we were going to just summarize Jesus' teaching, uh, the best summary of Jesus' teaching is the phrase, the kingdom of God. That when Jesus says, I've got good news to tell you, his good news is that the kingdom was at hand, that the kingdom was arriving. Now, what he means by that seems to be something different than what a lot of them were expecting. And so the Pharisees in particular um, had this kind of expectation that um, collectively, if the Jews would just behave themselves, maybe God would finally stop punishing them and kind of set things right. So we said, we said a couple weeks ago that... Um, The Jewishness, the Jewish kind of context of the Gospels are such that the exodus was the birth of their nation, the exile was the death of their nation, and they are in this kind of post-exilic funk where where they're expecting a deliverer, uh, a messiah, to come and deliver them from their economic oppression, their military oppression, their nationalistic kind of hopes and dreams are just not taking shape, and they need a deliverer. So, um, we'll do a little quiz here. Why do you think the exile took place? Why were they kicked out of uh, Israel and taken to Babylon? Well, I've heard it said that God planned that so that there would be synagogues out in the Gentile world all right, so, so Doug has heard that um, the God kind of pushed the Jews out, not necessarily because they've done something wrong, but because he had a plan to kind of disperse synagogues. So, you know, prior to the exile, there were no synagogues. Um, in fact, even in the Old Testament, even post-exile, um, we don't see any synagogues. So all these, all these groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, the very fact that you have synagogues in the diaspora, here, there, and everywhere, um, kind of takes place, at least in terms of the literature, during a time where we call the intertestamental period, between the testaments. But certainly, that's what happened. The Jews got dispersed. In their dispersion, they couldn't kind of make it back to Jerusalem, so they formed these kind of communities of faith, these houses of worship, and worship took a different shape. It wasn't so cultic-oriented. It wasn't like a sacrifice. It was more text-oriented. They, they would read the scriptures. They would pray. They would teach. Um, 
and then they kind of wouldn't sacrifice because that was something that would take place at the temple. Of course, when the temple was destroyed, kind of sacrifice ceased, but then the temple got rededicated. I think that's a pretty fine assessment as to what happened. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know that I would um, say that was the, the, the reason for the exile. I would say it was a positive effect. It's one of those things, you know, in Romans 8 it says, God works all things for the good, for, th for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Um, it's one of those things where God worked that for the good, um, even though the exile itself was kind of a hard thing. Um, the prophets said, look, if you don't repent, God is going to come and destroy Israel. Or he's going to come and punish you. you know? So the prophets, the Hebrew prophets, always had this kind of vision of the future uh, that was open, or at least partially open. Like Israel could repent and kind of get option A, or they could not repent and get option B. So option A, we repent, God blesses us. Option B, we don't repent and God punishes us. Um, and that's, that's, that's kind of how it flowed for a while. Jeremiah, in particular, he, he was kind of a, you know, kind of a tough uh, messenger. He's like, if you repent, you'll, your city will be destroyed, your temple will be destroyed, and you'll be taken into captivity. That's like, if you repent. Well, gee, <laughs> what happens if we don't repent? Well, you just get utterly wiped out. Um, their response to that was, that wouldn't happen. God would never do that to us. Or God would never let the Babylonians do that to us. And he said, you misunderstood me. I didn't say God was letting the Babylonians do it. I said God was sending the Babylonians to do it. You know, you've worshipped other gods. You've been unfaithful. There are consequences to pay. And so they get taken into exile. And... Uh, the Pharisees, anyway, seem to think that kind of if uh, I once heard uh, Phil, this has been a couple years ago, we did a series on my life with God. I don't know if everybody remembers that. We kind of preached through the Old Testament. The logo was that typewriter. Remember that? Yeah. yeah. Um, we got to this part of the exile, and uh, he used the metaphor of the timeout chair. Like it's a way of saying, okay, you don't get to continue to, to live and play and like normal, you have to sit over here and time out. Uh, it's, a, it's a soft metaphor, but it's nevertheless a good metaphor, I think, for the exile. It was like a time out. All right, you're going to have to live over here for a while, and uh, then we'll let you back in and we'll see how well you can behave. So if there's good things that God worked out of it, that is, he spread out the synagogues and they became very helpful later for the spread of the gospel. But if the exile took place, at least partially because of Israel's bad behavior, then it made, makes sense that Jewish leaders, even in the time of Jesus, when they're kind of expecting a Messiah, would believe that if we can get everybody to behave rightly, then God would bless us. So what does behaving rightly look like? Um, well, two big things that come out of Mark chapter 3, part of what behaving rightly looks like is keeping the Sabbath 
And part of what looking, uh, behaving rightly looks like is prioritizing your family. So this chapter begins with the story of the Sabbath. It ends with the story of the family. But in terms of the Sabbath, um, if everybody kept the Sabbath rightly then and kept the rest of the laws rightly, then maybe God would finally bring our exile to an end. I mean, geographically, they were, the exile was over. But again, as we said, politically, economically, militarily, nationally, the exile was still alive and well. That's why they were hoping for a Messiah, a deliverer. And so they come at Jesus the second time, the Sabbath story at the end of two and the Sabbath story at the end, end of, uh, beginning of three, saying, look, what are you doing? And Jesus uh, really is kind of pressing against uh, the, their use of it. Like the Sabbath was supposed to be a time of rest for people to enjoy the fruits of their labor and the provision of God. And they had turned it into a weapon to use against people who weren't doing it right. Uh, I mean, how many of you can remember um, when most businesses were closed on Sunday? And in my house, in my house, in my town growing up, that also included Wednesday afternoons. Any of you have that? Where they were called blue laws, um, that, that businesses couldn't be open on Sunday. And the banks and stuff even closed Wednesday afternoons uh, in the town where I grew up because on Wednesday night, uh, people were going to go to church. And so they got off early so they could uh, go get a meal and get ready for church at night. Well, that's certainly not the case these days. And so one of the things I'd like for us to reflect on is what does it mean for us to even keep Sabbath? What would it mean for us to work six days and take a day of rest? And how might we do that in a way that's not so legalistic, but does kind of practice a rhythm of of rest and celebration with God. What's interesting about the end of that passage is it says that the Pharisees, how does it say it exactly? The Pharisees sought to destroy him, which is that's the kind of the first we've heard of that, kind of our main character is about to die. The, this is verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately cons, uh, conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. That might not sound too uh, odd to us, Pharisees and Herodians, um, but it would be like saying the Republicans and Democrats finally got together because they figured they had to get rid of this guy. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, interesting. Uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians would have, are kind of mortal enemies. The Pharisees are like, we got to be religious, we got to be righteous, we got to be separate. The Herodians were Jews that uh, kind of followed Herod, kind of conspired with the Romans. They were kind of the political elite. And the Pharisees were kind of the anti-political religious elite. And so... There you go. Jesus was able to pull the Jewish community together in ways that others couldn't uh, and that they all wanted to, to destroy him. Jesus then, verse 7, Jesus departed with his disciples to go to the sea and 
A great multitude from Galilee followed him. Hearing all that he was doing, they came to him in great numbers from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and the region around Tyre and Sidon. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crush him. For he had cured many, so that all who had diseases pressed upon him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and shouted, You are the Son of God. But he sternly ordered them not to make him known. He went up to the mountain and called to him those who he wanted. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him and to be sent out to proclaim the message and to have authority to cast out demons. And so he appointed the twelve, and it kind of, kind of names them there. Um, so we, we had said before, in chapter 1, verse 1, we're told as readers of the text that this is good news about Jesus, who is two things. One, he's the Messiah, which doesn't seem to come out in the narrative until uh, chapter 8, when Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And then two, you are the Son of God, which... Um, gets confessed at the end of the story, Mark chapter 15, by the Roman soldier. Kind of earlier, it gets said here by these unclean spirits. Like they already know uh, that he's the son of God. And Jesus is like, y'all be quiet. To say that he's the son of God, for that message to get out, could do nothing for Jesus other than kind of cause him harm. I mean, Antipas was the king at the time. Um, the Jewish king, above Antipas were the Romans. There wasn't anybody in the neighborhood that was looking for some other leader. And these, these people, it says this great multitude has come. They've, they've come from all over Israel. Judea is way in the south. Idumea is farther south than that. Didn't used to even be part of Israel until after the Maccabean revolt. Across the Jordan, and then north, north of them, into land that was not even Jewish land. But people coming in from the diaspora, there were synagogues there, but it wasn't Jewish, right? A modern-day kind of Lebanon, uh, Tyre and Sidon. So these people are coming from all over, this kind of multitude, to see this guy who can do these kind of miraculous things. This expectation that, you know, it's not just like he's a celebrity kind of preacher, like we have celebrity preachers today, but that's not, that's not really the draw. The draw, the potential is much more than that. And then when Jesus, on the heels of that, goes up to the mountain and calls the twelve, um, the political implications of that are quite strong. So on the one hand, he's telling these unclean spirits, hey, don't let the cat out of the bag. We got some work to do before we make this announcement. On the other hand, he's kind of doing things himself that are kind of at least an action proclaiming uh, like a political stake, like driving the political stake in the ground. So just curious, um, does anybody know how many counties there are in Florida? I'm impressed. I, I actually don't know the answer to that. I'm just going to trust you two. But the fact that you both came up with 67 sounds right. What are the chances you could come up with that number independently? Um, how many members are there of the House of Representatives, U.S. House of Representatives? 435? All right, I'll trust you again. 
So that means if you add that 100 people in the Senate, there's a total of 535? That sounds right to me. So when Jesus, um, I don't know the rest of you. I mean, other, other than these two, anybody else in the room know that there are 67 counties in Florida? I do now. You do now? I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. Or that there are 435 members of the U.S. House of Representatives? Did you know that one? So we've, we've got some government trivia buffs. But in the ancient world, every Jew would have known the number 12. Like there had long since not been 12 tribes. Uh, there had been 12 tribes and they had formed a nation. But then there was kind of a divorce. The nation split, 10 in the north, 2 in the south. The 10 in the north got utterly destroyed by the Assyrians. Um, kind of in the neighborhood of modern-day Iraq, actually not far from where the conflict is going on right now. So an ancient culture came and destroyed the northern kingdom. Like we have, we have no evidence of trying to track now any kind of genealogy back through the ten tribes. They're just, they're gone. That, it was an utter destruction. The two southern groups, uh, Judah and Benjamin, got taken into captivity into Babylon for a while. They did get to go home. There was a, still a sense during Jesus' day who, who that group might have been, but not, but not much. But the number 12 still carried this kind of great, kind of patriotic, religious, nationalistic hope. Jesus didn't get it, just go up on the mountain there to get away. You go up on the top of the hill and you say, okay, I'm going to have 12 disciples. And what can they do? Not just kind of administrate or lead a military, but they can cast out demons. This is a, this is a significant claim on Jesus' part. Makes me wonder a little bit why he told the unclean spirits to be quiet if he's going to turn around and make this kind of open claim, uh, which is a significant claim, that he's going to have 12 followers. Um, it's, a, it's a strong kind of uh, political statement on Jesus' part. Then we get to um, verse 19, or halfway through 19. Then he went home. And the crowd came together again, so they could, could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, He has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul. And by the ruler of the demons, he cast out demons. And he called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins." And whatever their blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an internal sin. 
for they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Um, this kind of preludes the next bit uh, about his family coming and saying, hey, you need to come home. You know, you're getting out there on a limb. Kind of crazy, Jesus. And, and you get this. Uh, this is so typical, uh, even in our um, context today. If people don't like something, or if they find uh, something that doesn't fit their expectations... They try and vilify it. You know, if you, can, if you can call the other or reduce the other to a tagline or a name, then you can treat them however you need to treat them. Um, visit the Holocaust Museum sometime in St. Petersburg, uh, which is, you know, close by. It's, it's, it's worth your time. Or if you're in D.C., uh, there's a very impressive Holocaust Museum there. Or come with us um, to, to Israel when we go next. And uh, we'll visit Yad Vashem, you know, the place in the name. It's a really impressive Holocaust museum there in Jerusalem. A couple of things that um, shocked me about that visit was the, the language, the, the, the way in which um, in newspapers and in media the Jews were spoken of during the 1920s and 30s. Uh, depictions of them that looked like monsters. References to them as being monsters. When you talk about people and you use language like that, you dehumanize them. You, you desensitize us to them. Um, Don Cheadle, you know the actor, had that movie uh, Rwanda. Um, I highly recommend it. So in Rwanda, there were two tribes, um, the Tutsis and the Hutus. And they didn't get along. And so for the longest time, it was just verbal, you know, just social stuff. The Tutsis were kind of really tall. And so sometimes uh, the uh, Hutus would call them trees. In comparison, the Hutus were much shorter and the Tutsis called them cockroaches. But if you only talk about a group of people as though they're trees, eventually what will it be okay to do to your tree? Chop them down. If you talk about another group as cockroaches, eventually what will it be okay to do to them? Squash them. Um, you know the old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That is just not true. We have to be careful about our language. We need not to vilify the other. Um, our, our language matters. And so this is what the Pharisees are doing to Jesus, right? They don't, they don't like the way he's behaving. They don't like what he's doing with the Sabbath. They don't like his, his pressing the envelope. And so they call him a demon. Or say he's in cahoots with demons. And so that's a way of kind of um, decentering his effect, trying to kind of marginalize him. And of course, you know, he speaks to it in pretty um, amazing ways, telling the story, you know, how can Satan be divided against Satan? Um, if in the, in, the, in the short parable about the strong man, the strong man is Satan. And he's kind of saying, 
how do you deal with Satan unless you come in and bind him? And then you, once you've come in and bound the strong man, the stronger man, in this case Jesus, can come in and, and take those things, can kind of, you know, fix the problems. And then we have this ever so vexing description of this unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So how many of you have ever blasphemed the Holy Spirit? How many want to give it a try? Just kidding. Um, Our good friend Matt Hewitt tells a real funny story about how he thought when he was a boy that he had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And for years after that, was convinced that he was the Antichrist. It's a great story. You should ask him about it sometime. It's it's multi-layered. There are other steps to it. And it gets pretty funny. But sure enough... Um, it was part of his childhood. I believe, uh, and, I, uh, and I've, I've looked at this quite a bit, um, the simplest definition of blaspheming the Holy Spirit is to point at something God is doing and say, that's an unclean spirit. That's a simple definition. Um, the tense of the verb here, which this is a little technical, the tense of the verb here doesn't come together great in the translation I was reading. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven of their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness. Um, it's a past tense that's imperfect, meaning that it's kind of progressive in the past, meaning that if you're continually blaspheming, you can't find forgiveness. It's, it's really quite simple. If, if a doctor or surgeon is there to help you in need and you only identify them as evil and won't let them touch you or help you, will you get better? The answer is no. That that the, the problem is, if we're saying what God is doing is evil, then we end up in a perpetual state of denying God. And a perpetual state of denying God leaves us in unforgiveness. It is not like this is a particular sin that is somehow much, much worse than all the others. And if you do this kind of one episodic event, well, then you're out. That's, that's not what's being said. I'm pretty confident. Um, lastly, uh, there's the story of Jesus and his family. It says his mother and his brothers came and standing outside... They sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who, who, are, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, And here are my mother, or here, yeah, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. In, in our context, uh, I don't know if that comes off as harsh as I imagine it would have in a Jewish context. I mean, maybe in some families it still would. But I know a lot of people are, are pretty migrant. Um, I mean, I've lived in Virginia, Tennessee, England, California, and Florida. 
And so I've got family, uh, but they live far away, and you know I don't I don't see them every day. I don't you know I see them a couple times a year. And so the the idea that I have close friends that are closer to me than my family, I think is probably not a testimony all that strange in our culture. When I, when I say closer to me, it doesn't mean I love them more. It just means that I'm with them all the time. They would know, they'd be more apt to know what's going on in my life. I would be more apt to know what's going on in their life than, say, I do of actual kind of blood relations. But in the Jewish world, this sense of family had a lot to do with identity, right? There is one God. That one God has chosen us. We are the descendants of Abraham. God's going to give us this land, Things aren't so good, aren't going too good right now. We're expecting a deliverer. God's going to make it right in the end, right? So that sense of family was especially high. And so for Jesus to kind of challenge that, it's like, it's not as though there weren't rabbis around who were popular and did some pretty impressive stuff. But the Pharisees seemed to be very on edge with Jesus, because he doesn't seem to be playing by the rules. Like, you should be a better Sabbath keeper, right? You, you, you should ring the bell of how important family is. Um, I mean, even, even today, I'll, I'll hear ministers say that family is more important than ministry. Now, Jesus says, um, better to hate your mother and father, Right? and follow the Lord. Um, how they turn that into family's most important is, is difficult for me. <laughs> but, but here, Jesus is kind of prioritizing the faith. Now, I did grow up in a church where we actually called everybody brother and sister. Often brother and sister and then their last name, which doesn't sound that endearing <laughs> necessarily. But yeah, I mean, I remember... And I think I've told this story in church before, but we had a pastor. His name was Dole Stanfield. And my mom and dad called him Brother Stanfield. And so I know my dad had two brothers, Don and Randall, and my mom had two brothers, Garland and Harold, and I called all them uncle. And so I, I called Dole Stanfield Uncle Stanfield. And I was questioned on it, and I'm like, he's my dad's brother, I said. Pretty smart little kid, I guess. I'm only like four or five. And to this day, I mean, Dole only passed away a few years ago. But way into my adulthood, I called Dole Stanfield, Uncle Stanfield. Um, and then other people around, them, around me called him Uncle Stanfield, too, um, because they thought that was clever. But uh, in the last two weeks, we've kind of broken up into small groups. I've kind of talked a little longer tonight. And so instead of breaking up into small groups, I thought we might kind of move directly into our, our Q&R reflection and response. I do have a few of these things that might guide some of our big group discussion. And I have my Phil Donahue mic um, so we can get you on record. We can keep it for posterity. So generally, um, questions or comments about Mark 3, about the Sabbath or Sabbath keeping, about Jesus' idea of the kingdom.
blessed me the Holy Spirit. Yeah, John? Probably should ask this the first time, but what's the purpose of doing another translation, another English translation yeah. of the Bible again? Yeah, that's great. Um, the purpose is, is that language changes, right? And so the way uh, the English language that's used now is different, very different than the English language that was used a couple hundred years ago. And um, languages aren't neutral. Uh, this is kind of a second point. So the first is that language is always shifting. And to have a modern translation is, is to use words that is um, kind of most familiar. So one of the ironies of the King James is the translators of the King James were excellent translators. And they made a conscious decision to translate it using kind of informal language. So like the ye and the thou uh, was not how you would speak formally in, in the 17th century. It was kind of uh, colloquial. It would be like saying, "Go, all y'all go and make disciples. So y'all is, is a southern colloquialism. It's a plural. All y'all is like a collective plural. <laughs> uh, in New England, uh, uh, that sometimes people will form you, the plural of you, by just adding a, an S, like use. Or they have a collective plural, use guys. Um, so the ye is the equivalent of y'all or use. Um, it sounds to us today kind of formal because we don't know the king's English. They chose to translate it in that more colloquial language because they were uh, familiar enough with the Greek of the New Testament to realize that it wasn't written formally. It was written very colloquially. Like if you didn't know better, you'd think it was written by some carpenters and fishermen. Um, I mean, a lot of it was written by people without formal education. But, uh, so that's part of it. Language shifts, and as it does, it's, it's best to keep it fresh. The other part of it is, is that uh, interpretation, or excuse me, translation is not interpretation-free. Right? It's not neutral. And so theological belief and tradition is always impinging on how we translate. And um, there hasn't been a translation, a full translation of Scripture, done from the perspective of Pentecostal and charismatic Christianity, even though that's a very kind of large expression of Christianity on the planet today. And so that's what this group is doing. Um, so, yeah, so one is language changes, and two, there's no such thing as a neutral translation. If you wouldn't mind. Oh, dang it. Okay, so in the Old Testament, um, the people were given the Ten Commandments kind of as, hey, these are what you should be doing. If you don't do these, it's kind of sin. So it's kind of identifying what to do, what not to do, right? Okay. So in this chapter, you have two instances where it could be made, a case could be made that Jesus broke two of the Ten Commandments. Um, yet, as Christians, we believe that Jesus was sinless. So did he change the concept of what sin actually is? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, did he change the concept of sin? Uh, I don't know that I would say change the concept of sin, but I would say he feels free to interpret uh, those passages afresh. Kind of coming back to John's question, you know, why, why do we need another translation? Um, well, because some of the translations we've had have become stale to us, that, that somehow we, it's, instead of helping us, 
understand who God is, it can actually prevent us. So their keeping of the Sabbath, like what does it mean to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? Well, for the Pharisees, they had a very particular understanding of what that should be. And picking grain was not it. But then Jesus says, well, wait a minute. Um, David did it. And they went into the temple and they ate that bread that it was only for the priests. And then he said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. So uh, on the one hand, I feel like he's just interpreting differently. But on the other hand, he's doing more than just interpreting it differently. He's, he's making an authoritative claim that um, he is the, the definer of Scripture. He, he speaks for God. I mean, Jesus does and says what in the Old Testament only Yahweh could do and say. And in that way, while we don't hear him say, I am the Son of God, he, in his words and his actions, implicitly, he's screaming it, I think. What do you think? I asked you the question. Okay. <laughs> well, that's my answer. Um, I think what I got out of this was this whole um, challenge of what social control looks like. Oh, yeah. Um, and Jesus really challenging the church as a form of social control. And in that challenge, he's basically saying, you know, even the church has the ability to steer us wrong. Yeah. And in steering us wrong, we tend to ignore the things um, that grow us, for example. So he's making this stance. So I'm... I'm growing you guys and understanding if you're following me, it's going to be hard. It's mm. going to be difficult. You know, and I think that's the biggest thing that, that I got out of. Yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that. Um, yeah, so, you know, in their context, um, you know, how, how could the temple be wrong? How could the synagogue be wrong? How, how could they be wrong? They were God's people. Um, they were following the tradition. Uh, but I guess there's a wrong way to do it. And there's a way that it can become destructive. And, and I think that, I guess a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about these expectations of, of different Jewish groups and how they didn't quite match Jesus, Jesus, or Jesus didn't quite match their expectations. And a question was asked, you know, what would be a dynamic equivalent? I mean, do we have those same things today? And we kind of compared the, the scenes to, you know, conservative homeschoolers and compared the Herodians to people who are active in politics and the zealots to people who are very pro-military. And, and, and like, yeah, like there's some of that in all of us, uh, or at least part of it in all of us. We seem to be representative of some of the same challenges. Um, and I think the same would be with this that the, the Jewish religious hierarchy, which included, especially included the temple and what was going on in Jerusalem, but also included these small towns up in the north in Galilee, had um, exerted a power of social construct that was blinding them from God. And I think in terms of dynamic equivalence, 
the church has at multiple times, including contemporary times, been guilty of, of much the same. Um, if we read the Gospels and we're never offended, have we heard the Gospels? I mean, find me a character in the gospel who doesn't at some point or another say, whoa, Jesus, is that, did you say what you meant to say? Because that was kind of harmful. I mean, he comes at Peter. I'm not saying that Jesus was just walking off the chip on his shoulder, but, but he, he did um, challenge the status quo in, in both what he had to say and how he behaved. And if, and if we want to be followers of Jesus, then we're going to have to be followers of Jesus. And, um, yeah, how we, how we speak and how we behave is going to have to improve, change. Yeah, at the uh, beginning, or in the first part of it, you mentioned something about the uh, Jews uh, feeling like they were in this stasis, mm -hmm. post-exile, yeah. uh, kind of uh, in a, uh, waiting for uh, either the Messiah to lead them, for something to happen. Um, they, they even, because they were back in the land, but they were oppressed by the Romans, mm -hmm. they, they didn't really own the land. Uh, since uh, World War II, Israel has been reestablished back in the land. They don't have the whole land. Uh, is your sense that, that modern-day Israel still feels like they're in that kind of stasis, or, or do you think they feel as if they've, uh, that they've moved back into the promised land? Are they still looking for a Messiah? Uh, all yeah. that stuff. And yeah, I that's, that's a great question. Um, the modern state of Israel is a pretty complex culture. Um, there, the, the most conservative Jews who still live, who live in Israel today are anti-Israel because Israel is a modern secular state and they want a religious state. Um, so the, the, uh, the Hasidic Jews who live in Jerusalem and some of whom are actually members of parliament are anti-parliament. Um, so it's, it's complicated uh, because as we track the, you know, the kind of descendants of the Jews in the diaspora, whether they're in Argentina or Russia or Europe or Africa, or the, the Sabra, uh, which are Jews who had been living in that land for the last couple hundred years, because it wasn't totally void of Jews who lived there. Um, so that's an interesting group. Um, Sabra is a cactus, and it's kind of funny because they're real tough. And it's a name they kind of gave themselves um, to represent. And so it's a, it's a, it's a pretty mixed group. Um, so to what extent is the modern-day Israeli to be equated with the ancient Israelite? Um, and then how, do, how does that play out in terms of contemporary politics and the Palestinians and you know, areas like the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and and those sorts of things. Um, certainly, I would say there are some Jews who are not just Jewish ethnically, but religiously, um, who have made Aliyah. That means they've immigrated back to 
Israel and have become citizens of modern-day Israel, who I think would, would see that as a, a fulfillment of God's promises in the land. Um, in terms of the Knesset, which is their parliament, it's not, it's not verbiage that um, I hear much. So uh, Shimon Perez, who passed away recently, was a former prime minister. Um, what's his name? I forget his first name. His last name was Barack. It was very interesting because he kind of came from a kibbutz. Um, uh, Itzhak Rabin was, a, in my opinion, one of the best um, international leaders from any country. Um, and of course, he got executed. Not executed, but... Um, Assassinated. Netanyahu, eh, I don't know. Um, it's, uh, it's a complicated thing for me because the modern state of Israel is not particularly Christian friendly. Like you can't get a, a visa as a Christian missionary to go to Israel. So it's like Iraq, Iran, China, Saudi Arabia, Israel. These are the places that won't let Christian missionaries come. Um, I have a friend who is an attorney in Jerusalem, and he works primarily in the Messianic community because the government is not very Messianic friendly. Um, they've been denied um, marriage licenses. And so he's, he's won like a handful, handful, maybe 14, I think, uh, cases before the Israeli Supreme Court in favor of Messianic Jews. And uh, the Palestinians... Jesus... But so they're, they're Jewish ethnically, they're Christian religiously, they're Israeli by nationality. Yeah, so it's, it's complex. Um, then I also have friends who are Palestinian um, who were born, you know, in Jerusalem and have a Bible college in Bethlehem. My first trip to the Holy Land was in 1991, I think. At that time, Bethlehem was about 50% Christian, 50% Muslim. I went back last year, and it's about 80% Muslim, 20% Christian. Uh, it's, it's becoming harder and harder for Palestinian Christians to maintain existence in Palestine because the Israeli government is harsh. I mean... Um, it's a taxation without representation. So they, they pay taxes, but they don't get a vote. They don't have access. They don't have the same access to water. Um, the uh, settlements that are being built kind of across the green line are kind of impinging upon earlier um, kind of treaties. So in the Palestinians don't have a recognized government, so the UN doesn't recognize them. So they don't, they don't have like a military. Um, and there, there are large segments of Christians. What's interesting too, is you get Palestinians who are Israeli citizens. So in uh, Abu Kosh, which is a really neat little village, great food, uh, Nazareth. So Nazareth is almost 100% Arab. They're Palestinian by ethnicity. They're Israeli by nationality. So they do vote um, because they're Israeli citizens because they live in Nazareth. So they are doing pretty well for themselves, but they have family who live not so far away 
kind of across the border who are really struggling. So um, Ramallah struggles, Jericho struggles, Bethlehem struggles. Um, so that, that, that's a pretty, there's, there's no easy answer for me, either politically or theologically, of, of what to do with all that. Um, but yeah, I think uh, in terms of the, the greater, the larger question, how, how do I understand Jesus and his fulfillment of the expectation? So for me, election by God is always utilitarian. God doesn't choose just to have. God kind of chooses to use. And he chose Israel to be the light to the world. And through that light has given us Jesus. And now through Jesus, the uh, people of God has been expanded to include those who have faith in Jesus. So it's not just kind of abstract. It does have to do with real blood and real dirt, you know, real people in real places. But the, prom- what the promise that was to Abraham here has now been expanded to be to people everywhere. In some ways, that's how I understand the promise to Abraham. I will bless you, your descendants will be a nation, and through that nation I will bless the world, which is what's happened now through Jesus. So that, in a way, what was started in a small spot with a small group of people is now expanded to the whole globe and all people. Um, in, in some ways, that kind of works back to your earlier comment about the diaspora and how that worked. It is an amazing thing. Just real quick, I'm, I'm, I'm spinning my wheels here a little bit, but um, to say this, how many of you know somebody who is, say, third generation uh, uh, immigrant, but they don't speak the language of their grandparents? Yeah? It's difficult, right? It's difficult to maintain kind of language and culture. So they might know a few words, maybe a few swear words, and they know like uh, their grandmom's favorite dish. So here's the question. That's the norm. People assimilate, right? They get, it's a, we are a melting pot, right? We become a general one. How in the world, with 2,000 years of the Jews being spread in the diaspora, were they able to maintain any sense of cultural identity? And they didn't have a land. They didn't have a language. I mean, the Hebrew language kind of fell away. No one was actually speaking Hebrew 100 years ago. I mean, there are people who knew biblical Hebrew, but modern Hebrew didn't exist 100 years ago. And no one was speaking Hebrew on the planet. But yet, there was still enough of a cultural identity, a religious people identity, that they still existed. It's a miracle unto itself. Um, some suggest it's the synagogue, that the synagogue became such a formative seat of cultural power that that's what enabled them to kind of maintain any sense of identity. And it becomes, I think, then a great example of for Christians and the way the church should help shape us. Coming back to Jesus' teaching about family, right? 
Those who do the will of the Father are my brother, my sister, my mother. And then that could shape us and kind of hold us together. Um, Pat? Kind of moved my, my thought here. Okay. But because uh, I'm kind of more of a, a practical person in looking at what's going on today. Sure. And not that I want to be of any sort derogatory towards what happened in Israel and what is happening in Israel today. But the real thing is, is how we respond to God and how does Mark affect us in our world today? Mm -hmm. You know, and I understand the, the, the history and the story that God brought to us through Israel and the whole works. Um, but sometimes it seems to me like we get hung up on the past instead of looking into the simpler messages that possibly God is trying to bring us to through Jesus and even in these examples mm -hmm. um, and to how then we can relate to the people around us. Um, and I, I certainly would agree that it would be important for me to understand where the Israelites came sure. through so that I can respond to them if I ever came upon them. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm not. Probably not going to too much. Sure. And so therefore, how does Mark 3 really apply to me today? Yeah. In my world and my story and the people that are around me. Yeah, so I think some of those questions, the first couple that talk about, you know, the Sabbath. Um, I don't know what you guys are planning on doing Friday night and Saturday. But chances are you're not going to lay down all of your electronics and just rest. We're going camping. You're going camping? There you go. I, and so I, I stand corrected. You know, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Um, but the point is, we don't celebrate the Sabbath. Um, and so what, what does the teaching of Jesus have to say to us? I mean, the, the Sabbath, I think, represents positively um, rest, celebration, trust in God. There's no other ancient uh, civilization that took a day off. I mean, they, they were, they were hand-to-mouth people, right? And so the idea of taking a day off was a huge step of faith. Like, I don't have to get this done today. God will provide. Now, for us, what does that look like? I don't know, right? What does it mean for me? I'm not going to grade papers on Saturday. You know, well, I'm never get them all done, right? So we, we suffer, coming back to the kind of... Um, the way in which our religious organizations sometimes shape us, not positively but negatively, we suffer a bit from idolization of work. Like to be busy is a badge of honor. My calendar's full. I'm busy. I've got more work to do than I can do. What if that wasn't a badge of honor? What if that was a, was a signal of an unbalanced life? What if, what if we should be saying no more so that we can 
rest and trust? What if we had a rhythm that actually was at the heart of what the Sabbath was for and not at it's kind of the legalism that gets used often with the Sabbath? Um, so, yeah, you know, most of my life, adult life, well, maybe not most of it now, I'm getting a little older, but for when I was younger and an adult, I worked every Sunday. I worked every Sunday for, gosh, 15 years or more because I was young and I was working in industries where you had to work on Sunday. I worked in retail. I worked in food services. It wasn't because I wanted to work on Sunday, but I was in school and I had a family. And, and I had the church telling me, you ought not work on Sunday. The Sunday was the Lord's day. That's why I heard in the service, I would leave early to get to the restaurant. And then all those other people, including the people that said you ought not work on Sunday, were sitting in the restaurant. And they weren't particularly good tippers. And so all of my fellow servers all hated Christians, and we hated working Sundays. Everybody wanted to work Friday night and Saturday night because that when you, that's when you could make money. Not on Sunday after church because no one tipped very well. So what should we do? Not go out to eat after church on Sunday? I mean, that's not what I'm saying. But we have to find a way to, or I, I think it would benefit us if we found a way to promote healthy rhythms uh, without using that as a stick to either measure people or to beat people. I think um, in terms of practical application, uh, finding a way, um, the, that statement about Jesus, who is my family? Um, I think the church can be people's family especially in our day when we're so migrant and our actual family might be far away. That this is the place where we can come and be known. It's either here or cheers, right? You can give that to Joe when you're done. Sure. Um, my father, before he passed, he was an Adventist, um, very strong Adventist. So okay. therefore... Um, he worshiped on Sunday and... Adventist worship on Saturday. Saturdays, yeah. Worshiped yeah. on Saturday and practiced Sabbath keeping. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the interesting thing about it was, you know, it wasn't this issue about when you practice and when you don't practice for him. It was this issue of how you practice. Ah, interesting. So again, you know, um, turning off all the electronics, sundown, Friday night. Okay. Is that how he practiced it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. He was old school. Yeah. I mean, closing the blinds to his house, all that stuff until sunset on uh, Saturday, Saturday. But the issue wasn't rest. It was reconnection. Hmm. So he saw, you know, Sunday to, to Friday during the day as the things that he endured as a Christian, reconnecting with God son Friday night. And that's what he really focused on. So it wasn't an issue of, you know, I am... Um, resting from the things that ailed me, blah, blah, blah. But it was this issue of I need to reconnect with my creator during that time. You know, and I think that that's the thing that I, I mean, I didn't appreciate it as a child because I wanted to watch cartoons. Sure. But. And cartoons only came on Saturday. Exactly. Yeah, right. So I think, you know, as I got older, I'm like, okay, well, in my pursuit of God, in my pursuit of Jesus, you know, that has a lot of value to, to how we spend our time, how we devote our time. So. Yeah, I think that's very good. I'm, I mean, I, 
I don't actually practice rest very well. Um, I think my life is probably too busy. I don't have enough margin in it. But, but I'm not opposed to it. <laughs> you know, I think I think there is some health to it. I mean, and sometimes you know you can hit your stride and go. It is interesting in that the early church, early church, first century, was already worshiping on Sunday. I mean, it was right out of the gate that Sunday became the day of celebrating the resurrection. And so you get references both in Acts and in Revelation to the Lord's Day, which was shorthand for Sunday, not for Saturday, which was the Jewish day of rest. Um, But yeah, I mean, I've got a lot of good friends who are Adventists. I used to live in East Tennessee, and one of the hubs for Adventism is in Collegedale. Um, they also make Little Debbies, so we should all be appreciative of the Adventist, because I love Little Debbies, especially the Swiss cake rolls. Joe? Yeah, um, this is similar to the question the man asked earlier, but it's, I was thinking about the debate tonight, and, um, and I was reading this question where it talks about um, having a meal with someone who comes from a different tradition, and um, I, I came in... a debate in, tonight? Yeah. And so I'm that, just joking with you. I knew there was. That's why I'm thinking that, I might, that you might have spoke to it, but what I'm wondering about is um, there's so much division uh, between the right and the left and Christians who are on the left and Christians who are on the right, and... Um, you know the Gospels really well, and I'm wondering, like, have you, have you read passages where you know about the differences between Sadducees and Pharisees and Zealots and so on, and the way that Jesus dealt with them? And on the one hand, you describe Jesus being abrasive, but on the other hand, there are other times where, you know, he was a peacemaker. So I'm just wondering, what do the Gospels have to say to us as Americans in this time? Um, yeah, I think that's a great question, and I'm happy to address it. Um, there are a lot of reasons why I love Oasis as a you know local expression of the local church. Um, I mean, I think I was probably first attracted to uh, Phil's preaching. I just really like it. I thought it was very creative, very thoughtful. Um, my second Sunday here was a day that we did baptism, and I don't know if you've all been to a baptism service at Oasis, but it's often the only thing we do, and there's a lot of testimony and a lot of celebration. I think uh, in the world in which we live, it's hard to find churches that are very diverse, whether it's ethnic diversity or economic diversity, um, age diversity. Um, I think in some, some ways, um, Oasis is not all that diverse. But in other ways, I think we are. I think we're pretty diverse when it comes to age. I think it's, we're pretty diverse when it comes to socioeconomic status. Um, but I think one of the hardest things to find is a church that's diverse politically. That people will all swing one way or the other. Because we just don't have any room for each other when we're, when we're different on that issue. And Oasis is pretty diverse politically. And I couldn't be happier. Um, I've had parishioners tell me I really should vote for Trump. I've had parishioners tell me I really should vote for Hillary. I guess everybody feels like I need instruction on this. <laughs> I've had folks tell me I should vote for Gary Johnson. Had a guy the other day tell me I should vote for Jill Stein. I've had people tell me that I shouldn't vote, right? Protest non-vote. 
Um, that's, that's a lot of diversity. We're not that big. I mean, we're not that small on, on any given Sunday. I mean, we don't count, so we don't really know. But um, it, we know about how many chairs are in the room. So two, 250-ish, I think, is on any given Sunday. Maybe a little more, maybe a little less. That's a pretty decent size for, for people who disagree on what has become such a hotly debated topic. Um, I think um, our commitment to Jesus should transcend these things. And I think our hope should be placed in Jesus. And when our commitment to Jesus doesn't transcend, and when our hope then ends up getting placed in things less than Jesus to somehow deliver us from our plight, I think, I think we're on shaky ground. So Jesus, um, yeah, pay to Caesar what's Caesar's. Like, I don't know what you think about the U.S. government, but I'm confident living as we do in the United States with the U.S. government is not as bad as being a Jew living in Israel during the Roman occupation. That was tougher. They didn't have money. Right? They had, they had an a, a idea of property that after 50 years it should go back to whoever originally owned it. And now they're having to pay taxes on their property to the Romans. Well, who were the Romans? And where are they supposed to get money from? They basically bartered for their existence. This guy farmed, this guy fished, this guy built. And so they, they didn't really have a lot of money. And so now for the first time in the history of their world, they have insurmountable debt. And debt weighed on them in ways that they never had experienced before. The first, and there are two ways to see this. The first thing the Zealots did in the first Jewish war, when they took Jerusalem, they, they, they captured Jerusalem, they went into the temple. First thing they did, they burned the records of debt. This is in Josephus, the Jewish wars. Burning the records of debt so Rome wouldn't know who owed what. Because that's what they were upset about. And then... Not so much in Luke, but in Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer, it doesn't say forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. It says forgive us our debts as we forgive those who, have, who owe us. And I think sometimes we, we, we swim past that as though that's just a nice metaphor for sin. But I think in that culture, that had a lot to do with liberty and freedom. I don't know if you've ever experienced the crippling experience of debt, but it can be crippling. Like you can't do anything but, you know, do it. Uh, or feed, feed it, service it, whatever. Um, but yeah, there's a very real sense in which when, he, when, when the prayer says debt, it means debt. It's not a metaphor. <laughs> it's, it's they really needed deliverance from that. So I don't know if I, I'm getting at your question or comment, Joe. Um, I think if, if Jesus can say, hey, the kingdom can come despite the fact that Rome is in charge, 
If the kingdom of God can come to Israel, despite the fact that Rome is in charge, then the kingdom of God can come to the U.S., despite the fact whoever sits in the White House. By analogy. Patty? What just keeps coming to my mind as you're talking about this is um, when... Um, when God's people were governed by the prophets and they wanted a king and um, and God knew it was best that they weren't governed by a king but the people insisted and when I get so overwhelmed with what I'm seeing and experiencing and especially with the ease of social media and the way we communicate so simply now um, so easily I just keep reminding myself that we're not governed. Spiritually, we should not be governed by the government. Do you agree with that? Um, I'm not exactly sure if I know what you mean by the last bit, spiritually governed by the government. Um, But to your first bit, I think it's a great analogy that um, Israel kind of put its hope Misput, misput is hope, right, into a king, into a kingdom, and they were warned, right? They're warned in Deuteronomy, this is what a king should look like. The king should not gather up too much wealth. A king should not overtax the people. A king should not build too strong a military. A king should not, da, 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 right? There's all these things about the godly king. If you compare that list in Deuteronomy to what a king is supposed to do and not do, to first kings, to what Solomon did, it's like exactly the opposite. Like Solomon was doing exactly what the king was not supposed to do. And then the result ends in uh, disaster, right? They get overtaxed. Uh, They go hungry. Um, They get caught up in all sorts of economic and military conflict that that they they don't have an answer to. yeah, so I mean, I'm not advocating for some kind of theocracy. Um, I think there's a way to, to live in the world and, and be healthy contributors to it. Um, but uh, I think our, our relationship to it is always, or ought to be, always removed, once removed. And what I mean by that is our first allegiance, right, is to God. You know, our first allegiance is, is to God's church, which is the beacon for the coming kingdom. Our hope is in the coming kingdom and, and what that looks like. All right, my friends, uh, our time has come and gone. Uh, thank you again for coming out. I appreciate it. You're delightful. And... Next week, we will be looking at Mark chapter 4, uh, which is one of my favorites. Chapter 5 is even better. But Mark chapter 4 is good. Uh, that will be our topic for next week. Um, so feel free to read ahead. Um, come in with questions. Um, anything else coming up? I think that's probably it. Let me, let me say a word of prayer and we'll go. God, we love you. And um, I guess tonight, uh, we, we pray that Mark chapter 3 would come alive in our lives in special ways. I'm not sure all that that means, but whether it's rest or whether it's commitment to you or whether it's the um, 
resisting the temptation to vilify the other. Um, how, however that plays out in our lives, Lord, I pray that um, we would be faithful. Um, both faithful readers of Scripture and faithful doers of Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen.